Welcome to Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and the France Foundation. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, Abdi, Daiichi Sankyo, Pharmacyclics, and Illumina. As medical professionals, it's important that we stay up to date on the latest developments in genomic testing and understand how to interpret those test results, as well as select the appropriate therapeutic agents to manage hematologic malignancies. This podcast will focus on therapeutic testing for CLL. I'm your host, Dr. Sanjay Janeja, a hematologist and medical oncologist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I'm joined by Dr. Jacqueline Barrientos, who is a hematologist oncologist at Mount Sinai Medical Center, where she has been appointed Chief of Hematologic Malignancies and Director of Oncology Research. I'm so excited to be able to pick your brain today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. Thank you for having me here. Of course. You know, I think CLL is one of those we have to tip our hats because we're doing, you know, a really good job in that disease process compared to some of the more challenging ones like leukemia. But on the same uh, token, it's kind of easy to, I hate to say get lazy, but to just, you know, be comfortable with it. And the truth is, a lot has changed in the last couple of years when it comes to CLL. Classically, we think of it as this kind of benign, slower, indolent thing that needs either chemoimmunotherapy, or if you're kind of more modernized, you think, oh, you're fine, you can do lifelong therapy. But really, a lot of that's changed. I'm told that there's even finite therapy now when it comes to something otherwise known as, quote unquote, indolent, and that there are some certain things and scenarios where people qualify for that. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And it's just an amazing time for our patients with a diagnosis of CLL. We just presented an abstract with data showing that in the era of novel targeted agents, our patients should expect to live a normal, you know, survival as other patients that do not have CLL. So it's really good. That's incredible. It has the word leukemia in it. And to be able to do that is quite an amazing thing. So when we think about chemoimmunotherapy, initially, that's kind of all we had, right? Before we had this targeted therapy. And then shortly after that, when we did have these targeted agents, we kind of reserved that chemoimmunotherapy for really fit patients is how I learned it. And it had something to do with the mutational status, right? Heavy chain, TP53 and age. How has that changed? And when should we be thinking about chemoimmunotherapy now in 2023, for example, versus a lot of the other more novel things that we have? So actually, with all the novel agents that we have available, and there's two main ways to treat a patient with a diagnosis of CLL that requires therapy. Um, most of the data that we have come along shows that chemoimmunotherapy should only be reserved for patients that now have a diagnosis of a Richter transformation. Other than that, chemoimmunotherapy is a thing of the past in CLL. Only a couple of days ago, we had a new paper that came out in the New England Journal where the novel agent venetoclax was uh, used in combination with rituximab or in combination with ovenotuzumab against chemoimmunotherapy regimens that included FCR and BR. And it just showed that it was superior. Uh, similarly, a couple of years ago, as in the uh, intergroup trials, uh, the study E1912 in younger patients and the Alliance trial for older patients showed that ibrutinib as a novel targeted agent was superior in terms of overall survival for patients that were young, um, that were treated with ibrutinib and rituximab against FCR. And similarly, for older patients, the PFS was much better in patients that received ibrutinib compared to patients that were treated with BR. So, we reserve chemoimmunotherapy only for those patients that have transformed 
and we don't have currently a new treatment strategy for them, not yet. We're still working on that. But for everyone else, it's just a matter of which targeted agent should we choose. Now we have plenty. From a perspective of continuous daily therapy, we have the Bruton Sterosine Kinase Inhibitors, also known as BTK Inhibitors, that includes Ibrutinib, Acalabrutinib, and Sanabrutinib. And for the other cohort of patients that is a fixed treatment strategy, it's a VCL2 inhibitor venetoclax with uh, the monoclonal antibody obinutuzumab. Until recently, we didn't have that data, but this data was just published that obinutuzumab has, in combination with venetoclax, is much superior agent than uh, rituximab. So in terms of uh, CLL diagnosis, if I'm going to use a monoclonal antibody, as of today, I would choose obinutuzumab. But these data, like I said, are changing so quickly that unless you are reading about it every day and you're immersed in this uh, field, you can easily miss that there was a new drug approved. You know, uh, Sanabrutinib is the second generation BTK inhibitor that was just approved this year, 2023. There's another BTK inhibitor in the pipeline currently undergoing clinical development and in clinical trials for CLL that is called Bertobrutinib, only approved for patients with relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, but it has shown significant activity in patients that have uh, previously been refractory or relapsed after a VTK inhibitor and a VCL2 inhibitor. So the future is just amazing for our patients. And the way that we identify the patients at high risk for progression are usually by doing the mutational status of the heavy chain and also by the status of the tp 3 mutation by next generation sequencing or by FISH analysis of 17p deletion. Those are, at this moment, the patients that I would say are the at highest risk for uh, relapsing or progressing on a shorter timeline. But still, you know, shorter timeline can be anywhere from four to five years. So it's it's pretty good what we have right now for our patients. That's incredible. So even though it may float like an equal option when we see fludarabine or cyclophosphamide, it really, I mean, something should pop up and say, does this person have transformation? Otherwise, you go to these kind of novel targeted therapies that are either oral, like BTK inhibition, or an antibody like obentuzumab plus, um, like you said, venetoclax, which is also an oral targeted therapy. So when it comes to choosing like monotherapy with a BTK inhibition, like xenorutinib, for example, versus saying, ah, I think I want to go to like a fixed duration or, or a finite duration of therapy with the combination where obentuzumab is replacing the previous rituximab and you're taking on a targeted agent orally. What are some of the things that you think about? Because in some disease types, in every disease type, we think about performance status. Can they tolerate it, right? But then after that, you know, in some diseases, we think, well, what is their survival chances in five or 10 years if they didn't have cancer? And then that kind of dictates... Does that fall in the workflow on like if they're 82, the chances of being alive in 10 years, does it not apply? Is it mostly just the mutations, the TP53, as well as the heavy chain, like you said, are two reasons to at least believe they'll, they may recur sooner. But does that also dictate the therapy on which one you pick versus fixed and indefinite? Or what are those factors that pick one way or the other aside patient preference? So there are a lot of discussions that go on with the patients in terms of uh, what they prefer if it's usually a monotherapy uh, treatment strategy where they are on indefinite therapy versus a time-limited treatment strategy. And I would say that the majority of patients that are older, you know, like 75 or older, would say that they don't mind taking one or two pills a day because they already have other, you know, drugs that they use for their hypertension or their diabetes or their cholesterol. So it's not a matter for them that adding on uh, a different one might be more cumbersome. 
for young patients, it's just a harder discussion because if you are like 50 and you're having a life expectancy of another 40, 50 years, it's just hard to think that you're going to be on a drug for the rest of your life. And so for these patients, we usually mention to them that um, you know, a fixed duration treatment strategy could be very beneficial for them because they can just take the regimen for one year. And after that year, they are in remission for, you know, depending on their prognostic markers, anywhere from four or five years or even more. So we know that patients with a 17P deletion or TP53 mutation are relapsing sooner when they are treated with venetoclax and aminutuzumab. However, these patients could, in theory, be salvaged with a BTK inhibitor after, or they could be rechallenged with a venetoclax therapy. So even though we prefer to use continuous daily dosing of a BTK inhibitor in these patients with a TP53 mutation, it's still an option to use obinutuzumab plus uh, venetoclax because it's not um, something that would say, oh my God, you're going to relapse in the next two years on average, which is what we used to see with um, these patients when they were treated with BR or FCR in the past. These patients had really no good prolonged remission duration. So the longest and best responses that we have had on patients uh, with a 17P deletion or DPV3 mutation are usually those patients that were initially treated with a BTK inhibitor in the sense of the data that we have is with ibrutinib. And we're extrapolating that from other clinical trials from patients treated with acalabrutinib and sanabrutinib. But overall, you know, like if you have someone that says, you know, I really cannot be on a drug for the rest of my life, it would not be a bad option to do venetoclax anominutuzumab in a patient with 17P deletion or, or TP53 mutation because we still have the other option of salvaging them with right. a inhibitor. Which is what you would have started anyway if you didn't opt for the quote-unquote yeah. finite therapy. So even if you get a couple of years without a daily therapy, that's good. I remember one thing that did dictate my decision sometimes was if somebody had, you know, debilitating heartburn. So like in the South, we love like seasoned French cuisine <laughs> food. And then a lot of times I was like, oh, you really can't use the PPI anymore and this and that. But as I understand it, and I hope anyone listening, like if your patient is on one of the regimens where you can't take it, or formulations rather. A lot of them have been updated now, if I understand correctly, to be able to take you know things with acid reflux and everything so the quality of life is kind of maximized. Yeah, like uh, not only did a calabrutinib team create a new formulation so that you can use it in addition to your PPI, which, you know, I have the same issue. Some of my patients are like, I'd rather die than stop my PPI because <laughs> I want to still eat my Italian food. But you can also use sanabrutinib, which is another second generation BTK inhibitor that doesn't have that issue. And it's another option of care. There are some other patients that say, you know, I have terrible migraines. I don't want to even risk it. And so they don't want a calabrutinib because, as you know, some patients do develop headaches for the first three months and then they go away, but it, they can be naggy. In some other patients, they can have issues with hypertension. And we know from the data from the recent study of sanabrutinib against ibrutinib that the risk of hypertension is a little bit high with patients treated with sanabrutinib, so it's another option. So it's always good to have different options, even though it's the same class of drugs that we have for our patients. You want to like tailor it based on kind of exactly. what the surrounding medical picture looks like, which obviously makes a lot of sense. But despite all of this novel stuff and these amazing control rates, it still is very much the same uh, recommendation as before, right? If you don't have any you know, what's called cytopenias, anemia, 
or have anything that's causing painful, you know, lymph nodes or obstructive, you still watch it. And is that regardless even of the TP53 or Dell 17, like it's still watch until you need to do something about it? Yes, not only from the old trials, there was also a study, uh, CLL12, from the Germans, where they did compare uh, in patients with a high-risk disease, which included some patients with TP53 mutation, ibrutinib against placebo, and there was no improved overall survival. So even the investigator said, as of right now, there's nothing that will change our management for these patients with high-risk disease at this moment, unless they have IWCLL criteria for treatment. Right now, there's an intergroup study from SWOG doing the same uh, attempt to do early intervention trials with venetoclax and dominotuzumab, and I think the trial is still ongoing. Yeah, I hear that people are excited about that one. So when you mentioned venetoclax and BCL2, and then we talk obviously about BCK inhibition, what does the sequencing look like between the two? Is it one before the other? Can you go the other way if you kind of have a progression on one? How does that look? And basically, what is the workflow for that? As of right now, we don't have any head-to-head data, but from clinical trial perspective, we have um, some data that you can have successful salvage therapy with venetoclax after a BTK inhibitor. There was a phase two study that proved that this is doable. Um, my recommendation if we are going to do that is if a patient is progressing on a BTK inhibitor, not to stop right away, but rather ease the patient into um, the venetoclax dosing because it might take too long and then the disease might explode. So try to do it in combination at the same time and then stop the ibrutinib, kind of like physicians were doing for other TKIs in other solid cancers. And then from the other side, from venetoclax to be salvaged by ibrutinib or sanabrutinib or acalabrutinib, we all have had patients where we have salvaged them after that. And uh, that's also doable and it should not have any interference. It, like using one a treatment strategy should not preclude you from transferring to the other one. Once you have progressed to both of them, that's when you have to definitely send your patient to a CLL center where you can have access to a clinical trial because there are novel agents. And worst case scenario, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you cannot get access to anything, pertobrutinib could be used as a salvage therapy, as a, you know, off-label regimen. So you can definitely go between the two mechanisms. I think you had told me one time on a pre-call that some people actually think going from a first generation to second generation of the same drug class for progression is something that obviously should not be done because that's still the same exact target. It's just when these drugs came out, correct? So you can go from a first to a second generation as long as you are not progressing. You can go and use from a first generation to a second generation if you have intolerability issues. Uh, for example, you have recurrent AFEP, you can go to a second generation PTK inhibitor where you should have less uh, toxicity or less degree of this adverse event. However, if you are progressing on a PTK inhibitor, you cannot go to a second generation PTK inhibitor because it targets the same area. And so the drug is not going to work. And one last thing, now that makes total sense. But we talked about if you elected for finite or definitive therapy at first, then can salvage, right, with a targeted indefinite therapy. What about the other way around? What if someone is listening and they are 50 and they're like, I've been on an oral therapy, I kind of want to have a finite therapy, but I'm in a remission. Can you just kind of switch to a finite therapy or do you kind of have to wait till progression? Yeah, you in theory have to wait until progression. (laughs) There you have it. 
Well, Dr. Barrientos, I very much appreciate your insight, your knowledge, your clinical acumen with all of this, and really appreciate everybody listening, and I'm sure you do as well, to kind of further the education on an exciting field and kind of gives us hope on how we will hopefully handle all, you know, hematologic malignancies one day. But that said, thank you for listening to this episode of Genomics, Essentials in Hematologic Malignancies, a discussion about CLL therapeutic testing. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging, and please tune in to other podcast episodes for insightful discussions about ALL, AML, MDS, CHIP, myeloma, and lymphoma. You can find a full list of all these podcast episodes at hematology.org as well as lls.org.